Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Uh, thanks, sponsors, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, ComC.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Heritage Auctions, Panini, Upper Deck, and Tops. Here's Joel and uh, myself dueling. Thanks. Thank you. We've seen tons of headlines in the hobby over the last year or two. What is the next big domino to fall in the hobby for you? I think somebody is either going to figure out NFTs or not. And that is going to be huge. The uh, fractionals are moving along. The big news with fanatics, they're going to be doing some interesting things. But NFTs, there's huge potential there, but I don't think they've fully figured it out. Completely agree. Okay. Why did you pick the word mint condition? And what is the etiology or the meaning of mint that you're drawing on and your inspiration? Because mint can have to do with minty fresh breath, (laughs) or it can be minting coins. One of the master marketers of our industry was Mr. Mint. He really helped grow the industry, but he was Alan Rosen, but he became Mr. Mint. So he had a moniker. But why did you pick the word mint? What are you drawing on? And why is it such a magical word in our industry? Sure. So I chose mint condition because that's what I think of when I think of baseball cards, basketball cards. You want a card in mint condition. That is the pinnacle of owning a card in the hobby. And because the newsletter related to the hobby, that's why I ended up on mint condition. But I think I also chose mint condition because it's up to interpretation. It's not 100% clear to everybody what it really means. I didn't want it to just come up with a newsletter title that was breakdowns by Joel Belfer. It really was leaving it up to a bit of interpretation as well, some uniqueness uh, in there. That was the the origin for mint condition. I could come out with pristine condition. (laughs) <laughs> my newsletter, except yeah. I'm I'm retired. But do you take my point about mint being about breath or mint being about coins? It's both. But why has mint become such a word? Why is it mint condition even instead of flawless? Good question. Yeah. I think first off, it just flows off your tongue nicely, mint condition. It doesn't sound like pristine condition or flawless condition. It's quicker. Okay. And I think the hobby has taken with it and run with it. You have so many different conferences, companies popping up that start with the word mint you have from collectible. A lot of mint-related items in the hobby, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Victor Roman Sr., the, the rookie card specialist, he went back and did research to figure out what was the first usage of the term of art, rookie card. And I'm wondering if somebody could go back, what's the first time cards were referenced? As, and I don't know. I think probably I got started in the early 70s, and I think there were already mint cards then. The values weren't as exaggerated. So... Staying around the hobby and big news, we see fanatics enter the industry. They previously did not do cards. Now they do. Do you see any other non-card focused companies entering the space? There's already been, I won't say companies entering the space. I think as much as every company and every collector now has to recalibrate about what they are collecting, what's their sweet spot. When game used swatches, and uh, autographs on cards are worth so much compared to the whole jersey or an autograph signing session. It's an opportunity to reflect on what asset do I want to buy? A tiny piece of a jersey? Do I want to buy the whole thing? The fractionals are looking at that. So I I think you're going to see some movement of of people to to take advantage of those opportunities or those disparities. I don't know that's a whole new company. I'm a big believer in entrepreneuring which is not necessarily entrepreneuring. And we had little pods of, of people in our company where we love to start things. 
So we've started within our company. They didn't have to go away. Uh, they had the resources. And so I think there's going to be more of that. I think you're going to see every major company in our industry is going to broaden within sports. I, I think they're also going to broaden in terms of entertainment and music and movies. And again, Fanatics Absolutely. has been part of the movement to that because they've grabbed up. They they haven't taken the whole pie, but they've taken some big pieces of the pie. And so Tops and Upper Deck and Panini are all going to think, well, they, they haven't taken everything, but they've taken what used to be considered the big pieces. But there's some other stuff out there, the creativity. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Some of that is going to be expanding into areas that are not two and a half by three and a half pieces of cardboard. And yet, if it's a commodity, Fanatics is covered with getting a replica jersey <laughs> or a replica cap. But the collectible things that are not commoditized, there's always going to be an opportunity to really hunt and do the knowledge and figure out where the deals are. Okay. Definitely. Okay. You're 25, but if you were 18 and you're get, get a redo, so you're going to be going to college next year and you knew that here's where you wanted to end up doing the private equity stuff, but also being very involved in the card for the card aspect of what you love. Would you suggest that an 18-year-old major in any certain thing, if they love the hobby and they say the hobby is so on fire, there's going to be a full-time job for me. So do I get a marketing degree? Do I get a psychology degree? Do I get a business degree? Do I get a data science IT degree? What do you think a young person that loves this hobby, formal education, what formal education has helped you and do you see that somebody might want to go into if they love the hobby and want to eventually do it? That's a great question. And I think it actually relates to what I was thinking entering the University of Michigan. I actually started out pursuing a dual degree in business and sport management. My focus was on entering sport business right out of school. But what I learned early on, it actually presents you a greater opportunity down the road if you Start out within general business areas like a finance strategy or accounting job, learn the tricks of the trade, the tools of the trade there, and then apply it to something like sports or the hobby. So I think that would be my advice. Get a, a business degree. I think that is very valuable today. It will continue to be valuable for years to come. And specifically, get those foundational blocks of business. Take your accounting classes. Take your intro to, to finance classes. Take strategy classes where you actually have to break down case studies and present to, to your class. I think those are the types of classes that I found most impactful and I still apply those concepts today. So looking back on it, 18 year old me, I would do the same thing. I would go into Wall Street. That was just my focus, but others can go into accounting, can go into strategy, can go into consulting and take the skills they learn there over whether it be one to three years or four to six or longer, and then also have a bit of a side hustle, a side gig in regards to the hobby. And then perhaps is the next step for me is taking the skills I learned in business, utilizing the connections I built as part of my side gig and going full force into the hobby. So I think that would be my advice to any you know younger individuals who have similar passions that I did when I was that age. Okay. What is one constant in the hobby that has remained since you first entered that still goes on today and that you enjoy? And then secondly, what is one thing in the hobby that doesn't exist anymore that you wish still would be occurring? One constant, I think, has been that in the law of supply and demand is not fooled forever. There'd be some anomalies in the pricing structure, but yeah, I think that's always been the case. Another thing that's always been the case is the liquidity of the best cards has, has always been amazing, that it's better to have a card than cash if you want to get some other great card. Having a great card is better than having a pile of cash 
And that's there are not that many hobbies you can say that about. But it's always been the case. In the early 70s, you'd walk up to somebody's table, you'd ask them about something that was really cool, not for sale. But they said, what do you have? Frank Nagy, one of the greatest collectors of all time, he would not sell anything. But if you had something interesting, he could pull something out to trade. That's the charm of the hobby is that within the greater fraternity of sports card collectors, what you have is more interesting than how wealthy you are. And I hope that never changes. Previously existed in a hobby that's gone away, uh, that you wish. That- the fact that it's no longer a secret. <laughs> you know, it's Back in the early 70s, I could buy whatever I wanted to if it was for sale for low prices. That's where I accumulated my most of my collection before I started the price guides. And I'm not blaming me or anybody else, but as the hobby got more popular, people now think cards are worth a lot more. And in some cases, they really are, but they read the headlines and they think, I've got a card like that. They don't realize they don't have that card or that card in that condition. Talking them out of that is they think you're making it up because they read the headlines. Give me some finance and accounting arguments for why fanatics in the next few years should or should not go public. Because I think I can make a case for them not going public for a while, but I think they probably will go public. What's going through your mind and your training and the way you look at things? Because in private equity, there's usually a cash out day and, and fanatics, their valuation is up pretty high. They don't need to go public for money because they can easily raise money. So walk us through what fanatics might be thinking. I'll start with the why not. And I've definitely thought about this. You already mentioned one is that when the private market funding is not as readily available as it is today, companies tap the public market and not just in the sports card hobby, nearly every industry, venture capital, private equity money is flowing in like crazy, partly due to really low interest rates, partly due to just COVID in general, but money is out there for fanatics. And unless the private market funding you know, dries up, I don't see a need for them to go public and obtain cash through that. Secondly, another reason for them not to go public is because of their high growth, innovative, under the public eye, it might not be as sexy or attractive as it is under being private. Under the public eye, you are answering questions from investors. You are reporting quarterly. The CEO has you know constant calls with investors, with the public. And the amount of investment that Fanatics is making across all of its different business lines and the amount of innovation it's putting into place, there might be some more questions. Investors and individuals get under the hood a little bit about why they're doing things in a certain way. And I just think that's a big distraction to what Fanatics is today, which is innovating, innovation at its core, and not having to answer any questions about why they're doing what they're doing. And I think that's a huge piece of why companies don't go public is that public scrutiny, especially for younger companies, but also high growth companies that need to put out a lot of investment in order to grow. Um, So those are two main reasons that really stick out to me. I think a third potentially is also, will they be able to get the valuations they want in the public markets as they've done in the private? And you have the Fanatics e-commerce side, they establish the trading cards as a different entity. Do they go public as a full company and each one of these subsidiaries is also public or do they take each subsidiary public at different times? I think that's also a big consideration. A lot I of complex, they, if they went there. public, I think they probably would keep them separate because I think they could have very different multiples. And that's the right. reason why they separate. Right. So why put them together? Because when you put them together, you get the lower multiple usually. Are you mainly recommending that they not go public anytime soon? Because that's where I am, but just curious. Yeah, I think for now, that's what I say. I think, of course, there are benefits to going. A few things that stick out for Fanatics is publicity. Just become more prominent company, become more well-known as a public company. But 
I think fanatics, what their value prop is, their consumers, they are known around the industry, around the markets already today. It's not like they need to increase their brand by going public. The other benefit to going public today, I think, related to the SPAC market too. You see a lot of companies, the top is contemplating to go public through a SPAC. So the market is hot, but there just has been less attractiveness about going public generally. If you look at statistics for recent IPO companies, not just for SPACs, but traditional IPOs, performance and how they perform over the next 12, 24, it's, there's definitely some questions about whether companies should really go public and be under that eye. So I think that's also a big consideration. Fanatics, if they break it up into silos of uh, profit centers, all of them have positive cash flow. <laughs> it's not like some of these companies that are going to lose and then as they're accumulating eyeballs. Now, maybe that was Fanatics in the very early days, but with critical mass now, they're going to hit the ground running and be a, a cash machine, I think. You don't need to go public and have the scrutiny of analysts as well as broad ownership and institutional ownership. And everybody wants to look over your shoulder and tell you how to do your business. So when you're private, you can do things and you don't have to tip off anybody what you're doing. The other problem they would have is that what's the comparable company? Analysts have trouble evaluating a company that doesn't have it. And so right. I know that Fanatics has a peer. And so how do you establish the value compared to some other company that could be problematic? Yeah. And that, that definitely goes back to what we were discussing about getting the appropriate valuation for each of these subsidiaries, for sure. That also harkens back to Tops. When they were going public, of course, in their you know public investor deck, they had a, a page laying out the public comps. And it was just such a mishmash of companies. There's no one pure comparison, yeah. um, which is why I was really excited for was the tops go public. Panini was in talks to go public. Then you start building a base of actual hobby focused companies where we can get a really solid following in the public markets. You can have equity research analysts start covering these companies specifically because it's not just one company, it's multiple and more eyeballs are on the industry and valuations are more. That'd be another reason. Joel, thanks for dueling me with excellent questions on your part and great answers. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back again with another episode. And uh, Joel, keep up the great work with your mint condition e-newsletter that I enjoy receiving.